You're killing me, Smalls. from NFL Network and look you may or may not know I'm from Philly I'm ride or die Philadelphia but especially when it comes to sports so you guys need to check out Mike Small on the Killing Me Smalls podcast this guy crushes it and I can't wait to hear what he has to say next hey hello everybody once again for another episode of the Killing Me Smalls podcast I'm your host Mike Small and today uh, really, really excited. One of the most respected NBA people out there and a guy that I've admired for a long time. And we've had a little bit of a social media relationship for a long time. And uh, he agreed to come on the podcast today, Rick Buecher. Rick, you've probably seen on ESPN over the years. He's got a show on Mad Dog Radio. He is part of Bleacher Report and definitely, as I said, one of the most respected NBA people out there. And we're going to talk some Sixers today. Um, we're going to talk about the process, maybe what Rick thought about it originally and, and where it is today. We're going to talk about Brett Brown, some national stuff in terms of perception of the Sixers nationally. And, uh, wow, Rick, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you, uh, you've got a great background. You know, I read all about you. There's not too many sports writers that have a Dartmouth degree and, uh, you know, most of most of us are kind of knuckleheads. So, how did you end up starting in this business? Yeah, well, that's it's only because I was I was one of the uh, I was the black sheep when it came to uh, Dartmouth. They were smart enough to get into far more lucrative enterprises uh, than I did going into sports. But I uh, essentially I went to I'm the first and only person in my family to go to college. And to justify uh, being sent to an Ivy League school and uh, and all of the expense that comes with it, um, you know, originally I thought I was going to go wherever I got the best soccer scholarship, and things uh, turned uh, fortunately for me where I was able to able to get into Dartmouth. And so uh, I started out I was going to become an attorney or a lawyer because I just felt like okay I, I gotta. I got to justify the the expense and and the uh, the profile of of this education, and then when I was a uh, junior, um, I, I wrote. I'd written for my high school newspaper, and I wrote for all of the uh, the publications that would publish my stuff uh, at Dartmouth, um, from the humor magazine to the literary magazine to. Uh, the, the the Daily D and uh, and most of my heroes were were writers of some kind or another and so my junior year uh, I was told about a Time Incorporated internship where um, they had the seven at the time Time had seven magazines and they took three uh, candidates from. Uh, 30 different schools and out of the 90 they would pick seven and place one with each of the magazines and I wanted to be uh, I, I was hoping to be selected and placed with Time magazine as their uh, as their writer they had they had a sports page um, or a page dedicated every issue uh, to sports and I thought the nexus of uh, of news and sort of serious journalism and sports was the field that I wanted. Roger Angel with the uh, um, 
the New Yorker was, was right. one of my heroes. I yeah. loved the way he wrote about the game and about baseball and, and just about sports. And so, um, that was my ambition, but, um, lo and behold, I was placed with sports illustrated and, uh, I saw these, you know, at the time, the Frank, the Fords and the Dan Jenkins, and they were all living across the country and they'd parachute in and they'd do stories about big events and big names. And I thought, damn, that's a cool job. <laughs> it certainly sounds like <laughs> I mean, Wow. What, what a, what a, what a job. And so that kind of turned my, my head toward, you know what? And they seem to be living fairly good lives and they're making a little bit of money. So let me see if I can, I can do this thing. And, uh, and that's what really got me on the track of, uh, let me see if I can, if I can make it in, in sports. And, uh, it's funny now cause most people probably know me better for TV, but, um, you know, when I first started my, my ambition to be a, a sports writer and a, and a writer for, uh, a magazine doing long form for magazines was, was really the, the initial ambition I had to get into sports. You know, you find that most of the most talented television and radio people did start as writers. I mean, it's the journalism background that gives you the, you know, the uh, opportunity to ask the best questions, which will get the best answers, which will lead to to that. So I would think that that's a big part of why you've been successful. Yeah, but it's, it's also, you know, I had to understand, though, that TV is really a different craft uh, and it wasn't until I approached it that way, because uh, until I approached it that way, that that I I feel like I took a, a step forward and my my TV career took off. Uh, I, I for a long time looked at myself as just being a writer on TV and kind of had a little bit of quiet disdain, as most most writers do for TV, because it it's just a different medium and. Um, and so uh, once I – and I, I, I lost a debate. I'll tell you exactly where it turned. I lost a debate to Greg Anthony on NBA Tonight, and I felt like I had the more convincing, persuasive argument. It was a, it was a debate on who's the better teammate, Kobe Bryant or Dwayne Wade. He had Dwayne Wade. I had Kobe Bryant. Uh, this was uh, right around the time where the, the Shaq trade – I believe it was the Shaq trade happened and all of the Miami heat guys came to the Lakers and they, uh, and, and all of their numbers went up. And so I think we think of Wade as being a more magnanimous, uh, superstar, um, and Kobe, uh, a little more difficult. But the fact of the matter is my argument was playing with him because of all the attention that he draws and because of how dominant he can be, makes the game easier for everybody else. We put personality aside. Anyway. How did you lose that? Well, the other two guys on the, um, because uh, essentially because Greg Anthony was just more forceful in his argument. He had less ammo, but he came off more convincing. And I was like, you know what? I need to learn the, I need to learn how to be, it's not, it's not the content of what I have. It is, how do I convey it? What's my body language? What's my tone of voice? Uh, what's my facial expression? So I hired a coach, uh, an on-air coach, and I learned I learned that uh, 92% of what you convey to the audience is nonverbal. 
because <laughs> only 8% is actually of the content of the words that you're using. And so uh, I worked at that and, and I'm still working at it, but that led me to understand that it was a, a completely different medium. I mean, I look, I look at someone like um, Stephen A. Smith. I don't know how, how often the content of what he's saying is has particular depth or that he's giving you uh, there, there's plenty of people out there. There's some great writers out there that give you far more insight into things, but Stephen A knows how to deliver a message and how to captivate an audience. And that is the, uh, the secret sauce for him. And it's why he's been so successful. And it was really coming to terms with that and accepting that, you know, I'm, I'm a multimedia person. I'm a storyteller in multiple mediums as opposed to being just a writer on TV. You know, as somebody who was a writer as well as on television uh, a while back, there's almost a little snobbery to it, right, on both sides. You know, yeah, because the absolutely. writer, yeah, the writer is like, you know, these TV guys, they just show up and look pretty. And the TV <laughs> guys are like, you know, these these writers come in and they sit by the buffet line, ask a few questions yeah. and throw it together. So uh -huh. having to marry the two, I, I know that I felt that. So it's yeah, really interesting yeah. to hear how you did that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'm sure you had the same experience that I did, which is like at least when I when I sort of made the transition, um, my 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 writer friends looked at me sideways and the TV people didn't really accept me. Because I like I, you didn't you're like you're just jumping the fence here, right? <laughs> and uh, and I, I I really felt like a man on an island. I was I was Switzerland. I was not being accepted by either side at uh, at a certain point. Uh, you just gotta have to gotta go and have fun with it and uh, see who's gonna pay you. And if they both pay, you deal with it, right? Well, and the thing is, is that I I mean, look, I knew at the time when I was with the Washington Post and I went to ESPN. Uh, getting to the Washington Post was a, a, a huge uh, honor uh, and a step in my career. And when I got there, George Solomon, the sports editor, said, just give me a year before you go to ESPN. And I thought, what are you talking about? I just got to the Washington Post. I went from the San Jose Mercury News to the Washington Post. I'm, you know, this is the place of... Uh, uh, of Ben Bradley and Tony Kornheiser and uh, and Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, like I, I, I've you know I've arrived and now you're saying give me a year before you leave, um, and it was almost a year to the day when when ESPN um, approached me, but uh, what I realized was that um, that you had to become proficient in multiple mediums because of the way that the business was changing and that you learn, you had to learn how to adapt and, and change and be flexible. And I mean, I continue to this day, you know, joining Bleacher Report was really, uh, you know, for the reputation they had when I first got there and what they were and the idea that you would work, you know, for something that was strictly a website. Uh, this is six, seven years ago. It was still that was still somewhat novel uh, for someone who had always been with a newspaper or a magazine of, of some kind. And um, but it's really it comes down to I'm a storyteller and I'm looking for how can I reach an audience? And 
whether it's TV, it's radio, it's podcast, it's whatever it might be, um, it then becomes, I have to develop the skills to be able to tell the story in that particular medium, because it's, it's a little bit different. It's all, it's all language, uh, but how you convey that language is, and how you shape it is going to be different from medium to medium. No, that's really interesting insight and uh, appreciate you sharing that. And speaking of transitioning, we're going to do a quick commercial real quick. Uh, Kobe Fryer, Rick, is our car guy here in the local area. He runs Matt Black Kia, and they've got uh, dealers in Toms River, New Jersey, Egg Harbor, Glassboro. I've known this guy for 35 years. And uh, here's a funny story for you. I told this on a previous podcast we were in high school and he didn't even have a car. I drove him to his first interview at the uh, at the dealership. And 35 years later, he's a bigwig making tons of money. But you know what's great about him is he can help anybody. If you have no credit, if you're looking for a car, if you're looking to get out of a lease, doesn't even matter if you're looking for a Kia. He's a great guy for you to know. And they have the Telluride and all kinds of new pre-owned cars. Any credit situation can be handled with ease. Give Kobe a call. 609-706-2101 or reach out to me through the podcast. So Rick, getting back to getting back to the podcast. Let's talk about the Sixers. So the Sixers have been I've got to think the most interesting team in the NBA if nothing else. I mean they you know, they did the Andrew Bynum trade which turned out to be a disaster and got rid of Doug Collins, brought in Brett Brown, Sam Hankey came in actually and, and made the changes. Sam said, you know what? We're going to get, we're going to knock this thing down before we build it up. Let's acquire a ton of assets. And in a couple of years, we're going to take as many shots as we can at, at stardom. And we're going to be intelligent when it comes to the cap. And we're going to see where we're at. Now, going back, there were a lot of people that did not think it was a great idea. What were your thoughts then? And do you still have those thoughts now? Yeah, it's a it's a great topic. It's a complex issue. Uh, my issue with the, the my greatest issue with the process and most Sixers fans who I've heard from at various times when I have because uh, I, I was critical uh, of the process from early on and uh, and and I know I know Sam well. Um, We've had, he's actually in the Bay Area as a professor at Stanford. That's where I live. And we've gotten together uh, a number of times. Uh, We have a good relationship. I had a a good relationship with him beforehand. Um, But he also knows how I feel about the process. And and now having had some time to kind of, when when you're in the midst of it, and that's kind of what we're, where we are now, and that we're judging things while they're still moving targets. And everybody gets really hot and bothered about you know, you're not seeing the future. No, you're not seeing the future. This is this is going to turn out great. No, it's not, etc. Um, when when the story hasn't yet been told, and I feel as if the story to uh, to a certain extent has now been told. And my issue with the with the process was less about the idea that, hey, listen, let's just lose a lot of games and let's collect assets and um, because and, and, and let's try to get as many high lottery picks as we can because that's really the, 
the secret to to building a championship caliber team, the idea that you're going to do it through free agency uh, and you're going to land one of the big fish. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that's there are certain markets that maybe they can they can bank on that. The vast majority of markets cannot. And so from that standpoint, it made sense. What always rubbed me the wrong way about the process is that it ignored the human element of building a basketball team and building a successful franchise. And you can lose and you can collect assets and it can, and, and it can look great on a spreadsheet, but ultimately it's what's the culture that you're building? Uh, who are the, who are the people that you're putting together? Because I just, uh, having been covering this league for, 20 some years I know that in building a championship team it still comes down to chemistry and chemistry all the way from ownership to the 12th man on the roster and they all have to be of the same mind they all have to understand their roles and they all have to be able to communicate and perhaps the greatest issue that I had was that Sam did not do a good job on the human side of things. He wasn't a great communicator. He wasn't connected. He would say on the road, he would stay in a separate hotel. He, he almost purposely distanced himself. And on one hand, I get that so that you can be as objective as possible. But on the other hand, it goes beyond, far beyond in building a successful team. It goes far beyond I'm going to get this guy who averaged 10.7 rebounds a game, and I'm going to get this guy who averages 22 points, and uh, and this guy who averages 6.7 assists. And uh, no matter how deep you dig into the analytics and you try to form a team based on that, it's still a matter of how do the personalities mesh? How does your coach mesh with the players? Can he get them to buy in? to what he wants to do because the X's and O's everybody know the X's and O's. Yeah. You know, you come out of a timeout, the ability to, to uh, take advantage of a particular matchup uh, that's vital. You have to have that, but it's as much getting a team to believe in your X's and O's. And so that they give you an hundred percent effort in executing it. That's going to make the the difference between success or failure. And, Ultimately, I, I look at it like this. I mean, you had four years of abject losing. I don't know that we'll ever know whether the process could have worked. I'll put it this way, because Sam didn't get to see it to completion. He did the demolition. He did the collection. It's like if he was building a house. He got all of the shingles and the wood and, and the beams and all of that. And, and then they said, okay, you know what, we've waited four years for you to build this damn house. We're going to get somebody else in here to build it. And uh, and so I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating thought. Would Sam have traded for Markel Fultz? Would yeah. he have done the Jimmy Butler trade? Would, you know, yeah. a lot of those things are interesting. Yeah. But I, I'd be interested to know, since you're in touch with Sam, we really haven't heard from him since he left. Yeah. Um, and you're not asking you to divulge private information, but does yeah. – does he feel like he did something pretty cool? And does he take pride when he sees where the Sixers are now? Or, or do you think he feels like uh, he has a lot of unfinished business that, that he'll never have been able to finish or all of the above? 
yeah, I, I, it, it, I think there's a certain amount of uh, pride uh, in in where they are. I know that he still follows them and watches them, uh, but it's also sort of it. It was, as I said, like he didn't get to see it through. So it's it's really someone else's. Um, it's someone else's baby now, and so. It's a little bit like, I don't know, I, I, I can't speak firsthand on this, but I would imagine, you know, you're, uh, you, you get divorced and your wife gets uh, remarries and um, she takes the kids and like you're, you're seeing your kids grow up, but they're with their mom, you know, five out of, you know, you, you get them every other weekend or whatever. It's like you're still involved and you still care, but the, the heavy lifting really isn't part of what you're doing. You've kind of moved on to your own track and they're doing their thing. And that's what I get the sense with him is that whether it's, you know, teaching at Stanford or a lot of the new enterprises that he's involved in that are non-sports related, um, that he's kind of moved on to, to other things at this point while still, you know, looking back and saying, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a little bit like me with the, the growing up in Cincinnati and, and the Red, you know, I, I, I keep tabs on them, but I'm not, I'm not emotionally invested in them the way that I once was. You know, Sam Hinkie is, is revered here. I mean, uh, yes. it, it's amazing. He's, he is a cult hero in Philadelphia. Yep. There's no question about it. Um, people really believed in it. They got tired of the mediocrity. He had a vision. He executed it. <laughs> Pardon me. And people stood behind it. Are you surprised that he's never gotten back into basketball or do you think he was blackballed or do you think, you know, cause when the conspiracy here is that Adam Silver called um, Josh Harris and said, enough of this, he's got to go. You've got to get a basketball man. And, and he forced Jerry Colangelo on the Sixers. Now I don't know if that's true or yeah. uh, part of it's true or, or what you think, but I'm surprised that Sam hasn't gone somewhere else. Well, I know he's. I know he consults with a number of teams. I, I believe that's somewhat by his choice. Uh, there, are, there are a number of teams that would have hired him in a uh, in a lesser role, uh, not as a GM, but as an assistant, or uh, you know, in some capacity to uh, inform them. Uh, but I really think it comes down to you can't just collect assets like you have to run an organization and there were a lot of things that were going on with the Sixers organization that 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 Sam didn't have a firm grasp of and uh you know in talking to to teams and I don't think it's really that Adam Silver was the one it was uh it was the owners collectively saying look we, we don't draw anything when your team comes to town. Your team is not drawing anybody. I mean, cult hero, I think, is accurate. I think there was a fierce band of, uh, of fans, particularly, and this kind of feeds into the way I see the fandom of the league changing, is that uh, I, I think the, one of the big reasons why uh, people were – big fans of Sam were people who didn't watch games. They, they love the idea of the Sixers being a championship team. 
Well, that's the uh, uh, fantasy sports mentality, right? It's the yes. transactional love. Yes. And, you know, if exactly. you look at, you know, the trade deadline, um, yep. when that when that window opened up, rather not the deadline, but when the free agency opened up, mm-hmm. uh, how exciting was that? I mean, you're on television. People are signing left and right. People love yep. the transactional nature of building a team. It's, it is, to me, the NBA owns more of the sports landscape than it ever has. I mean, the week before the Super Bowl, the, the, the top news story was Anthony Davis and whether he was going to the Los Angeles Lakers. That was the biggest story. It, it overshadowed the Super Bowl. And, and I've, never, I've never seen that before. The, the NBA dominates more of the sports landscape when it comes to news than it ever has. But the numbers of people who are actually watching games is 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 falling, and I do believe it is exactly that. I think it's the I think it's the fantasy nature of imagining who is going to play with who or what my team is going to look like if it drafts this player. I'm not actually interested in going and seeing and analyzing how good that player is or what the team does. I, I'm I'm more interested in the the letting my imagination run wild in terms of, uh, you know, who we could get and what that team would look like. And Sam tapped into that and his fans are the people that ascribe to that. And I, and I think that there's a, it's a, it's a growing, uh, audience. And so it makes a, it makes a, a lot of sense. I'm except for I'm the fact the that you can't get a seat in Philadelphia. I mean, that's, those games are popular now. People really love this team. Yeah, well, but now we've—I mean, we've moved on to the next phase, uh, which is, you know, you do make the Jimmy Butler trade, and you do pay uh, top dollar for uh, Tobias Harris, and you do go get a JJ Redick. I mean, there was a, there's a, a lot of there's been a lot of subsequent moves that that I don't know whether they would have or would not have been part of the process and now you have you do have a successful program but i w- i'll say this too like if you don't go get the Ilyasovas and the bellinelli's and the jj reddicks and the guys that didn't don't necessarily fit with the original trust the process model then i don't know that the sixers have the success that they've had over the last couple of years. And I'm not going to step away from the fact that every, but every Sixers fan who was uh, telling me that Sam was a genius in what he was doing was saying, this is how we're going to build a championship team. This is the way to do it. You don't know what you're talking about. This is the new model. You're antiquated. And I'm like, okay, show me the championship. I know you have a successful team. I know you have an entertaining team. Are you telling me that uh, those four years of abject losing, when I look at a Boston or I look at an Indiana, if you want to tell me that, hey, we had to lose that badly, that consistently, that many years in a row because we were going to get a championship out of it, okay. Um, well, I let me ask you this. That, that's a great – see the championship. Yeah, great segue. So this is a championship roster, we believe, in Philadelphia, one yeah. one that has been worth the wait. 
Um, one that we think is a better team than it was that lost on the bounces to Kawhi Leonard at the end of last year. One that's got depth. Uh, yeah. One that's got a couple of superstars and some people on the rise. There's a lot of defense with um, it's a it's a great defensive team and there's some great defense off the bench. There's a couple of good players off the bench. Uh, it seems ready to go. Do you think this is a championship team? I do not. Because I don't know who your go-to player is. You can have all the defense in the world, and I love their defense, and I love the pieces that they have. I mean, for me, Joel Embiid would be my go-to guy. The problem is with a big, with seven seconds left in a game, you can't hand him the ball and have him bring it up and get you into something. You have to be able to get him the ball. And... Uh, and that takes time, and teams can simply overload and force the ball someplace else. Do you think Tobias so, Harris could be that guy? I think he's very good. I don't think that he is a guy that you hand the ball to, and he creates his shot and uh, and gets it against whatever matchup there is. And if he doesn't, if he, it's going to draw so much attention that he's going to make the play that's going to get somebody else the easy bucket and he's going to get it to the right person. I, I don't, I don't see him as that kind of a guy. I think he's very good. Um, I would have signed him uh, over Jimmy Butler. Again, this is a chemistry thing. I agree. Um, but it's just, and I need to know that, uh, that Ben Simmons as my point guard is going to have a jump shot. It's, I, it sounds simplistic, but the reality is that... I don't think there's anybody in, that doesn't agree with that. <laughs> now, I look at the East, and the East is wide open. So, uh, you know, could they wind up in the finals? Yeah, I think they... I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to look at another team. I, I, have, my, I, have, this, I have my same doubts about Milwaukee. Like, I, I have... I have questions about all the teams in the East. I don't. I'm, I'm, Milwaukee's sort of my favorite by default because I am assuming that Giannis is going to take another step forward. I don't like that they lost Malcolm Brogdon. I thought he was another playmaker. Um, so uh, again, it's kind of like my best player ideally is my go-to guy at the end of games. Joel Embiid, in my mind, is the best player on the 76ers. I, he, can he be my go-to guy? I, he can't be my uh, go-to guy in for reasons in the same way that Giannis is not my go-to guy at the end of the game. For the same reason that I mean, Ben Simmons and Giannis have a little bit of the the same the same issue, and that um, they it becomes very predictable in terms of what they where they want to go and what their sweet spot is and. That makes it easy for me with five seconds left and I'm up by one. Uh, I can force you to take a shot that you do not want to take. That is a low percentage shot for you. Um, and so uh, it, it's it's wide open as far as that's concerned. But there's still there are ingredients that every uh, that every championship team has. And and one of them is when all the chips are in the middle of the table and there are four seconds left. I have a guy that I can hand the ball to and I can say, I need you to go get me something. And he can more often than not, he consistently, cons consistently do that. And if he doesn't get a quality shot, 
then he's going to make a play that's going to he's going to draw so much attention that it's going to uh, open up uh, a, a shot for somebody else. And that's that's the element that's the element that I just don't see the Sixers have for all of the all of the money that they've spent and all of the talent that they do have. I mean, it is it is a loaded roster. I'm not arguing that. Is it a championship that it has all the ingredients of a championship team? I'm not convinced of that. Well, based on your logic, then you would say that Boston is the team to beat in the East. They've got that guy. They've got Kemba Walker. That's the guy you want to give the ball to with 30 seconds to go and down by one or two and or protecting a lead and getting fouled. And uh, I'm not sure any of the other elite teams in the East have that. Yeah, I, I'm not. And I'm not a believer in Kemba Walker just because I haven't seen him do that in the playoffs. And I haven't seen, I haven't even seen him do that in games to get his team to the playoffs. I think size for Kemba, I think he has the desire. Um, but I think you can, you again, in a playoff situation where I can game plan for a particular team. And, and when now we're talking about the best against the best, I can take a, I can take my best defender and I can put him on Kemba Walker and I can make a, a long athletic, uh, defender and I can make it difficult for him. What does Kemba go to when he has a guy like that, that he's got to get past and, and I have a little bit of rim protection. And if I'm a playoff team, I probably got a little bit of rim protection. So, um, I, you know, Boston, Boston's an interesting team just because I think that uh, their success two years ago had a lot to do with the, uh, the motivation of, Oh, you don't think we're any good because Kyrie and, Gordon Hayward or hurt, uh, you had a bunch of young, talented, motivated guys, and you also had a league that looked at them and didn't think they were going to be that good without those guys. And so um, they found a little bit of magic. Uh, I need to see Jason Tatum uh, take the next step. To me, he might be that go-to guy uh, that that gets it done for them uh, with the game on the line. Uh, but they also, you know, they lost a lot of. Uh, toughness on the front line with Baines and Al Horford, and so and Morris, they've, they've, yes, and Morris. So they've got some, they've got some holes to fill uh, as well. So I look across the board, and um, you know, I mean, Toronto does Pascal Siakam take you know the next step up, and I think that's the other part too. Is is there's a great value in understanding what it takes to win a championship and who on the Sixers other than Brett Brown has that experience that can say from day to day, because I believe championships are built from the first day you show up from training camp, the, the, the discipline, the habits, all of it, the focus on every day we are building toward this thing. And unless you're doing that every day, there's somebody else who is, and and they're potentially getting an advantage on you. I've got to think Al Horford could be that guy. I know he doesn't have a championship, but he's a pretty accomplished player, a good veteran, great presence. He is, but uh, you know, I was surprised last year with all the problems. With, with all the problems last year, I thought Al would be a guy who would who would bring the troops together, who would um, who could be that voice in the locker room, and and I was told he's just not that kind of guy. He is a he's a great guy by example, but if Joel if uh, Joel Embiid is being a clown or Ben Simmons isn't being serious enough, Al's not a guy who's going to grab him by the collar 
is going to sit them down and say, hey, um, you know, if you want to go where we want to go, then we need to do this a little bit different. And the and the, the other problem is um, when you don't have that ring to say, look, if you do what I say, you're going to get one of these like that. The value of that is immeasurable. <laughs> it gives you it gives you the legitimacy in the locker room to say, dude, I've done it. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. This is what we have to do. That carries a lot of weight. And when and when you don't have that, you know, it's it's really easy for a player to go, well, how do you know? And they, they can do that with a coach. They can do that with a player. And trust me, when it comes to, like, am I doing it my way or am I doing it your way, uh, it takes some convincing. All great points. I told you I wouldn't keep you too long, so I'm only going to ask you one more question. You mentioned Brett Brown. Brett Brown yeah. is a bit of a lightning rod in Philadelphia. I mean, he's he made it through the process. There's a lot of yeah. people that felt that, um, you know, when you look at that last game seven against Toronto, three 24-second violations at the end of the game, yeah. Brett got a lot of heat around here. Do you think he's a guy that could take it to the next level? I have no doubt that he could. Uh, part of, I mean, a, a, a big issue with the team is the can you get the genie back in the bottle with Ben and Joel? The there's been a certain amount of entitlement that um, that I planning on writing when it comes to not just with the Sixers, but the relationship between owners and the best players on the team that has undermined the authority of, of coaches in a number of places. And I believe the Sixers are one of them where um, there are allowances made that undermine the coach's authority. And as I said, it's, it's not the X's and O's. It's getting everybody to buy in to the, the, the game plan and have, and have everybody fully committed to doing exactly what they need to do and believing that it will work if they do it. Um, I believe that that's missing. And I don't believe that Brett suddenly forgot everything that he learned with San Antonio. I mean, I, to me, it's remarkable that he's, he's made this journey that he was around for all those losing years. And then he got guys to buy in when they turned the switch and said, okay, now we're going to try to win. <laughs> it's people think that's easy to do. Okay. Now we're going to win. It's like, wait a minute, but you've already planted the seed that it's okay to lose. And now you're telling me winning means everything. Like you want me to buy a hundred percent with that. You've already indicated to me, you've already shown me that that's conditional when we want to win. And so I, I'm, I may not embrace that to the level that is, that is necessary. The fact that he was able to make that turn uh, is, uh, is just unbelievable to me. But here's the thing. Like, people always want to fire a guy. Um, I, I very rarely hear, okay, so who are you hiring that's going to be the answer? Like, tell me who, who's the guy that's going to come in and do this better. And right. Everybody wants to uh, give all the TV guys the jobs, right? They want to get Mark Jackson, who got yeah, fired, yeah. and everybody else who's been fired. But uh, something's always better. You know, I think yeah. I think with Brett, the interesting thing is he, he survived that Jimmy Butler situation. I mean, Jimmy yes. was really good for the Sixers, but 
you know, I have it on some pretty good authority. He wasn't always the easiest person as, as you wouldn't, as you wouldn't expect. Right. I know that sounds like a crazy statement, but he wasn't in Minnesota. He wasn't. Yeah. But I mean, they, they played it off that he was fine except for that one time, but it, it wasn't just that one time, but I will say this, Joel and Ben, um, you're right. I think they're, you know, there, there's a lot of work to do in terms of the chemistry there. I think signing Tobias Harris was a good move for more than just him being a player. He's a pretty special guy, and I think there's a lot of respect for him. And I think him and Al Horford being around, I think, makes a big difference from the chemistry perspective. At least that's that's what I feel. What about yeah. you? Well, I, I think they are positive guys in the locker room. I do. I think they are pluses, not minuses. The question is, do they do they carry enough authority and do they have the personality? You know, sometimes you have to have a difficult conversation. Sometimes you have to say, you know what, dude, it's not good enough. And Jimmy would do that, but Jimmy did it in a divisive way. Right. Jimmy was really about, you know, get out of the way, give it to me. And Jimmy's not good enough to play that way. Like, it's, I need that. If you're going to take the Jimmy approach, then you better be winning me. You better be Michael uh, Jordan. Yeah. Yes. You better be Kobe Bryant. You better be Michael Jordan. You better be a guy that, uh, that, that can get me there. And if you're not, then you know what? Then, then all you're doing is pissing me off. Cause you're, <laughs> you're, you're saying we got to do it your way, but you're not good enough to get us, get us all the way. So I might as well do it my way. Or who are you to tell me what to do? And that is, you know, not in a in a contentious way, but Ben and Joel are going to look at Al and Tobias and say, "Well, okay, so why I'm, I, we're the stars here? I'm the star here. Why am I listening to you? What have you done that I should listen to you? That I should follow your lead?" And well, in, in Joel's case with Al, Al's the one guy that stopped him more than anybody else. So I've got to think that's going to help. It could. It, it, it certainly could. It yeah. certainly could. Um, you know, but the but the other part is and it really comes down to Ben because Ben's going to have the ball in his hands. As yeah. Point guard. He's going to have the ball in his hands. So he's the guy that you have got to convince how things need to be. And I, I just honestly the stubbornness and the question that I have about like why he hasn't developed a jump shot to this point and kind of the laissez-faire passive aggressive, you know, answers to that, that doesn't fill me full of confidence that, <laughs> that, that he's, you know, he's, he's suddenly going to flip the switch or that he's not, he's not more, He's uh, not more dedicated to, I look, I, I got this. I'm going to do it my way as opposed to, hey, listen, Ben, this is what you need to do. Because I, I, you know, you and I aren't the first ones to posit, and I'm sure countless people, I would hope countless people have told Ben, hey, look, we're not going anywhere unless you develop a jump shot. So, Well, I've got to think Josh Harris wasn't signing that max deal unless uh, that conversation was had. And, and you know, there's... All the uh, the you know the perfectly edited Instagram videos showing yes. him hitting jumpers everywhere, but yes. at least he's taken them. And you know what? Honestly, 
If he shoots 28% from three-point land and just takes a couple a game and shoots a couple of 15-footers, yeah. I think it'll just change the dynamic of the, the entire team. Uh, a thousand percent. A thousand percent. But, I mean, we're – so he was – he didn't have a jump shot in college, okay? Didn't develop one there when you got all the time in the world. Um he came and he was hurt his first year in the pros. If there was ever an opportunity to take an entire year and just work on a jump shot, it was that. Then he plays a year and he gets exposed because he doesn't have a jump shot. He comes back, he still doesn't have a jump shot. It's, it's like the lack of urgency in filling a dire need Lends me to believe, leads me to believe that he thinks, yeah, it would be nice if I had a jump shot, but I'm so good, I don't need a jump shot. And it's not a matter of him needing a jump shot, it's the team needing him to have a jump shot. And uh, that's that's what, you know, at this point, I'm like, dude, clock is ticking. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You're, you guys are loaded up now. If, if he comes back and it's no different, then you've just you've just hitched your wagon to a to a very um, dominant, savvy, defensively able uh, point guard who doesn't have a jump shot, and you're paying a max salary too. And to for for championship aspirations. Uh, that is not money well spent. Well, Rick, now that you've depressed the entire city of Philadelphia, <laughs> I, uh, no, I, I, I'm not, I don't try to be, look, Warriors fans were all over me this past year because I said, I don't know who's going to win the championship, but well, actually I picked Boston at the beginning of the year, but I felt that the champion was going to come out of the East. And I thought that the Warriors were physically going to break down this year because they did last year. And I just, I thought, you know, said KD's leaving and they're not winning a championship. And people thought I was just hating on them. And it's not, it's not personal for me. It's, it's seeing, it's taking my experience and covering the league and what I know about dynamics and saying this fits with what my experience is and this doesn't. So Philly fans, uh, I love your city. Um, I love that the 76ers, I mean, the, just the 76ers brand and, and having a meaningful team uh, is great to see, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it or I'm not going to buy into fantasies that I don't believe can be made into reality. Rick, I'm going to wrap it up right here. And I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. I could honestly do another hour, but I promised I wouldn't keep you too long. But I'd love to bring you back around All-Star break if that's possible. And we can kind of check back in and see what it looks sure. like from there. Sure. We'll see where we are. All right. Thanks, Rick. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the Killing Me Smalls podcast. Give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. Thanks again.